Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I am joined by sommelier Lindsay Smith, who is the owner of Flight in Cleveland. It's a wine bar up in Cleveland, Ohio. There's a couple of different flights out there, one in Portland, as she kind of mentions over the course of our interview and podcast here, and a couple others too as well. But the reason I wanted to have Lindsay on, been trying to kind of connect for a little while, shot a couple messages. They were pretty busy with events and everything, but we wound up figuring out a time that she could come on and before kind of the shop opened for the evening and everything. And wanted to have her on just because there's not a whole lot of wine shops in Cleveland. There are some here, there and everything, but it's still very much a beer town. So what she's doing, the concept that she has been open for a couple years too as well. It's pretty unique, especially in kind of the Cleveland area. She's off Detroit Road up there. That's like two hours away from us here in Columbus, maybe a little bit more. She's pretty much focused on bringing in quality wine, making it available to the public, but it has to be within a certain price point that she's trying to find everything in, which is kind of the optimal price point for most wine consumers. You know, you hear about these stats all the time and they say like, I've heard things, you know, Costco's the biggest wine seller uh, in the US and most everybody, you know, only buys wine that's like $15.99 a bottle or below. Like you hear kind of all these different stats and, you know, where the price point falls and everything. So she's really operating in kind of that $20 to like $45 range is all the wines that she's trying to make available to the public, you know, and focusing on quality within that price point where a lot of wine shops, you'll have maybe that price point, but then you'll have stuff higher and higher and higher and they have these different tiers. So you can find stuff that's like like over $100 a bottle, but you can find stuff that's, you know, $50 to $70 a bottle too as well, kind of depending on your price point, where she's really focusing in on this one price point and bringing in quality from different regions, whether it's Italy, some stuff from America too as well. I think uh, they have like a South Africa flight on the menu currently. And then they have the flight concept where you can order and try different types of wines based on whatever themes that they're coming up with. But then they also have kind of the pour system too as well. So you can try a bunch of different stuff and everything is available by the bottle too as well, which is pretty awesome. And they have a wine club that you can join. So you have to be local kind of for that, or at least probably within the state of Ohio. So you can make it to Cleveland, or maybe if you come down from Detroit and go to Cleveland, like once every couple of months, um, you know, it'd work out for you too as well. But you can follow her on Instagram. Uh, it's at Flight Cleveland. You can follow us on Instagram too as well, at Spoon Mob. All the other social media is either Spoon Mob or Spoon Mob One. We really only use TikTok. We'll put stuff up the night before an episode comes out. Facebook, everything's linked to our Instagram account. So you can follow us there if you want, but we don't really do anything special with it. It's kind of everything that flows through our Instagram flows up there. Twitter or X, we don't do anything with. Reddit, not really too much either. We're pretty much like Instagram only um, just because it kind of fits what we do and what we interact with the best until something new comes along that kind of replaces it. But you can also check out our website, spoonmob.com. We have links to all the episodes up there. We have a master page, individual pages for all the guests, food photos, wine photos, contact information, Instagram handles, all that stuff is up there um, where you can kind of find people. And then um, there's a contact portal. You can write in questions, comments, feedback. Make sure to follow us uh, either on the podcast app that you use on Instagram too as well. But also uh, we have a YouTube channel if you prefer to use YouTube over Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever. YouTube is currently merging Google Podcasts with like YouTube Music. So all that stuff's going to become like one service. They'll probably offer a subscription or something if I had to guess based on how everything's going in that world. 
that's sometime happen early next year that Google Podcasts will shut down. So if you're in kind of that ecosystem, it's kind of being reworked, but you can find us on any of the platforms uh, we're available. But without any further delays, here is the conversation with Somalia Lindsay Smith, the owner of Flight in Cleveland, Ohio. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of your day and everything. I know you're pretty busy. You guys have a lot of events upcoming too as well with the holidays. And I think you guys have like a live podcast you're hosting and you have some winemaker I think you guys are having come in um, too as well. So I want to get into kind of everything you got going on with flight and upcoming events. I always like to start at the beginning with everyone, you know, how they kind of first got into the industry. I think all that information kind of helps explain how somebody wound up in the situation that they're in now. So for you, how did you kind of first get involved with wine? You're from Illinois. You were kind of dabbling in the restaurant scene in kind of the kitchen area of being a chef. And eventually it pivots to wines. Kind of how did all that materialize originally for you? Beginning, I worked in restaurants sort of off and on through college. Ended up going to Columbia College in Chicago, which is a really nice art school there. I quickly realized I wasn't the best photographer. So <laughs> I thought maybe I should do something a little different with myself. You know, I was 19, 20. I wasn't quite sure what to do. So I ended up pivoting to marketing communications. I was maybe better than I was. I ended up with a public relations degree, which I at the time thought maybe I would go into public relations and politics, which I now laugh at because I can't even imagine myself doing that or anything remotely like that. I think I would drive myself crazy. Meanwhile, while I was going to school, I you know, had some retail jobs, I had some restaurant jobs, and I had started to really get interested in cooking. My mom's a really good cook. And so I had grown up with home cooked meals and watching someone in the kitchen. I started to think, well, maybe I'm interested in food. So I ended up going to culinary school after I graduated college just for a year, got my associate's degree and was thinking I was going to go work in a kitchen. Went and looked for a lot of different jobs in kitchens and I was getting turned down left and right. And I came across um, a guy who owned a catering company in Chicago who met me. And I think he met me because there was maybe there was like a mutual friend or someone, I think he was doing someone a favor by talking to me. <laughs> and here I was thinking I might get into his kitchen and absolutely not. He was never going to let me in his kitchen, but he was like, Hey, I'll buy you a suit if you want to go do sales. At that point, I really needed a job. So I was like, all right, I'll go do that. So I spent the next six months, like pounding the pavement down in the loop in Chicago, just trying to get in front of people who might be ordering catering. And I was really responsible for like the box lunch continental breakfast crew. Like that was the kind of catering that I was selling primarily. I wasn't doing, you know, private parties or anything like that. I did that for a while. And I figured out that while I really don't like cold calling, I was actually okay at it. And I was pretty good at getting myself in front of people and somehow convincing them uh, that they wanted to spend some money with me or with the business I was with. I eventually was able to transition that into a job with a restaurant group in Chicago called Lettuce Entertain You, which is pretty big. And they're not just in Chicago. They're kind of all over now, but they're they're very, very big in Chicago. And it, it felt like kind of a coup that I got in there because they were, you know, certainly tough to get into. And I ended up being a private party manager for two of their restaurants. 
and had a really, really amazing team of mentors there who I didn't realize were going to be my mentors. But one guy, he was the general manager of the restaurant that I represented. And he saw something in, you know, the 22 year old Lindsay that I could not have even begun to see. And he just offered a ton of support and advice and kind of was good at pointing me in the right direction um, and helping me help myself. And then I had another mentor there who was the head of private parties for Let Us Entertain You. And she was just so kind with her knowledge and what she was willing to share and also kind of giving it to me straight. Cause I feel like, you know, when you're young and you're think you know everything, um, you really don't. And sometimes it's really helpful for someone to be able to tell you that in, you know, a kind and gentle way. Um, and so I feel like between the two of them, they really set me up for success. Uh, I think they, made me feel confident in my abilities and my skills and also, you know, gave me a lot of new skills and abilities that took me into sort of the rest of my career. And there's so many things that I learned during that time that I still carry with me. So yeah, that was that was a really nice uh, kind of start to the career. I never ended up going back into the kitchen. I'm a very avid home cook. I quickly realized that I think sales was the right place for me. So while that first guy who hired me, I was real mad at him at the time. Um, I don't think that he was wrong. He definitely pushed me in, in a good direction. And I had a pretty good career in sales and catering. So I worked in restaurants in Chicago for about six years. And then I got recruited to come to Cleveland, Ohio to come work for the same guy that had hired me in Chicago at Let Us Entertain You. He had moved himself and uh, reached out to me and asked if I wanted to come take a job here, being the director of catering at the Cleveland Clinic, um, which I was like, at a hospital? Like, what is that even about? I didn't even know what to expect. I was like, Cleveland? Why would I leave Chicago? Like, I love Chicago. And, you know, I came here, I interviewed, I got toured around Cleveland. And it just occurred to me that this was such an awesome opportunity to work for this huge institution um, that has, you know, international recognition, and it would be a really big challenge. And there was also good money in contract food service. So I was um, excited to not be making my, you know, scrappy little salary um, with commission. I was excited to have a more I did it. I came to Cleveland and got into contract food service and spent the next nine years. Um, not all of it with that company, the next nine years working as a contractor. I think with my favorite job doing all of that was working with the Cleveland Museum of Art, which is where I was before I came to start my business here at Flight. The Museum of Art was one of the coolest places I've ever worked. It's I don't know if you've been up here and, and spent time in that museum, but it's free every day somehow. And they have the most beautiful building, the most gorgeous galleries. And it was a really hard job, but it was also wonderful in the sense that if I got super stressed out or I needed to think about something and I needed to go take a walk, I could just go walk into these amazing art galleries and just think for a second. And I think somewhere along the way in all of that, I sort of had a little love affair with wine that had started. You know, I told you I had a little love affair with food from the beginning. That never stopped. I've always cooked. I've always been interested in food. And I travel for food or I actually build my trips around food. Um, and it's sort of how I think about where I'm going to go. And, you know, it's basically what am I going to eat there? And what, what are they eating there? And what are the locals? You know, what are the, where do they go? So I do my research that way. And you know, somewhere in there, there was a wine component when it came to, you know, crafting these, these dinners and these catering events that I was doing. Uh, I was never quite close enough. Um, and it was never quite consistent enough in the catering world for me. But on the side, I was reading a lot. I was tasting a lot. I was going to 
you know, wine shops and wine bars and trying to just get my hands on anything and that I could, that was new and different and trying to understand it. Um, and I eventually started uh, my WSET, which I can't remember when I did it. It was a long time ago. I want to say it was seven or eight years ago. Maybe I'm not sure. I did that here in Cleveland and I thought to myself, I'm just going to do level one for fun because it's January and it's Cleveland. And you know, what else am I going to do? Eight months later, I'm completing level three and I'm carrying around stacks of flashcards and memorizing all of these things and doing it while I'm still working. You know, I'm, I'm sitting there typing emails with flashcards next to me. So, I mean, it really kind of took over in that year and I loved it. I realized that I wish I'd gone to college when I was older because I really loved school and I didn't love school when I was in school. And I was like such a better student when it came to the wine side of things. And I don't know if that's like maturity or if that's the subject matter, but either way, I would have gone to wine school forever if you let me. Like if that could be a job, I would have done it. I just loved it. It was it was so great. I learned so much. I met a really good group of people that were in my class that I tasted with. And I just got like really excited about wine. And meanwhile, I'm, you know, still working in my corporate job and I was making good money at the time. And I had lots of vacations. I was traveling for wine and I had some really good friends that would play along and they would, you know, go to Bordeaux with me. (laughs) They would, you know, suffer through a day of um, wine tours uh, with me, like picking up dirt and being like, oh my gosh, now I get it. There was a lot of that. And, you know, I tell the story of flight and it starts for me in Bordeaux, which sounds so bougie, but it's really wasn't like the bougiest of moments. I promise. We had spent today touring wineries and we were spending the afternoon or early evening. We went to a little one um, in downtown Bordeaux. It was outside you know, in this little plaza area. And it was, you know, covered with trees. And there was this old church and cobblestone, you know, streets. And it was just, you know, so picturesque. And we sat down at this wine bar. And the server came up to us. And, you know, there was no menus, no nothing. And she was like, what do you feel like drinking? And for a second, I was like, what does she mean? Like, I want wine, you know, give, give me wine. And I was like, well, what do you have? And she's like, no, no, just tell me like, what, what do you feel like? Do you want white? Do you want red? Do you want rosé? Do you want it richer, fuller, lighter? Like, what, what do you want? And I was like, oh, I see what she's doing. So we all gave her some sort of description. And she came back with each of us having three different wine glasses representing some of the things that we had each told her. And they just had a number on them. So we didn't know what we were drinking. So we had this lovely experience where we were each drinking these half glasses, these three different half glasses of wine, not knowing what we're drinking, not knowing if it's from Bordeaux or somewhere else in the world, our little cheese and crackers um, under a blanket in this lovely square in Bordeaux. And I looked at my friends and I was like, I want to open a wine bar. And this was back in 2012. You know, we all got excited about the idea. I told them kind of what was coming to mind and sort of why this place was invoking something in me at that moment. What I loved about it was that there was no intimidation there. You didn't need to look at a menu. You didn't need to know anything about wine. All you needed to be able to do was tell the server what you felt like drinking. And if you could come up with a few adjectives, you were good. And she had you covered. And I just loved that. And she was so nice. And the whole experience was friendly and warm and welcoming. It was unlike many of my early wine experiences that were not always so friendly and warm and welcoming. Sometimes they were a little 
more stern <laughs> where people weren't really willing to share knowledge or didn't have the patience to answer some of my maybe dumb questions early on. And I just loved it. And so that place has never left my mind. I have always thought about that and thought about the feeling I had when I was there almost in everything that I do with flight. Now, my place doesn't look or feel like that at all. We do not have cobblestone streets. Um, we do not have like these gorgeous old churches towering over us. Um, you know, we're on Detroit Road here in Cleveland, Ohio. It's busy, it's urban, but it is hopefully sort of the, the beginning of that idea to create something that was warm and welcoming and that didn't require a lot of initial wine knowledge. Now, on the flip side of that, if you do have a lot of wine knowledge and you're interested in wine, there's something for you here as well. And I think that was the big the big thing for me was like, how do I approach everybody in the same way? And how do I meet everybody at their their level of wine interest? And I spent from 2012 to 2018 thinking about that. I would love to say that I was just, you know, really like giving it a good think and that I was working on it. And that's not true. I forgot about it for a while and like I would daydream about it. And then, you know, I got new jobs. I enjoyed what I was doing. There was one of those things where I kind of in the thought, you know, always had that thought, like, I don't know how to open a business. Like, why would I think I could do that? I kind of hung back for a while and, uh, didn't really do much about it. And then I had my aha moment. And I will not use names in the story because it's ridiculous. When I was working at the museum, we did an event. Um, I want to say it was like, must have been the fall of 2016. And it was a really large event for a big company here in Cleveland. And I'd spent eight months working on this with them. Two days before it was realized that we had missed a detail. And if you're Familiar with a traditional place setting on a table, there's the dinner plate, but there's also this thing called a charger plate, which sits under all the other plates and it's decorative. And, you know, months and months prior, we had gone over to the rental company and selected all the things that they wanted on the table and everything had theoretically been ordered. However, this one piece did not get ordered. And so the day that all of the rentals were being delivered to the museum, um, our team had realized that they did not send any charger plates at all, which was like, God forbid. We immediately, of course, like tried to troubleshoot it, figured out that there was no getting all of the one charger plate and that there was no way to make this happen. There was going to have to be some sort of compromise, which was going to end up being that half the room had one charger plate and the other half of the room had the other. And I remember I had to be the one to tell the client because I was in charge of the event. The reaction was so harsh. Like it was so harsh. I, I don't think I've been yelled at like that before in my life. Like maybe when I was a child, it was really, it was rough. I remember I was just so distraught about it because I felt like I had completely let this, this, you know, person down. And I was just, you know, it was, it was a hard conversation. It was a hard day. And the next morning I was getting ready and I was still having all these feelings. And this is event day now. And I love event day. Like I get up in the morning and I'm like, bringing out of bed. I've got like butterflies. I'm so excited. I, I loved putting on these big events and I'm just glum. Like I'm not having a good day. I'm not feeling it. I'm on the phone with my sister who lives in Milwaukee and I'm telling her about what had happened the day before. And, you know, as I'm telling her the story, 
I'm starting to cry and I'm crying about a goddamn fucking plate. Like, what is wrong with me? What am I doing? Like, this is not life. You know, <laughs> like I cannot be upset about this. I think it was in that moment that I realized that I didn't want to do that job anymore. And it wasn't about the place and it wasn't about the woman who was upset. It was just about the thing where I was, I was done doing something that didn't bring me a ton of joy. I didn't realize that I wasn't full of joy for a while because I was, you know, proficient at the job and I was getting great praise for the work that I was doing. And so you feel like you're doing a good good job and you feel like things fine. In that moment, my sister jokingly was like, move to Milwaukee. And I was like, okay. And she's like, really? I was like, yeah. I was like, can I come live with you? And she's like, yeah. She's like, well, let me ask my husband first. (laughs) Yeah. They let me come and live with them, me and my cat. We ended up in Milwaukee. I guess that was, that was what, like the fall of 16, I think by January of 17, I'd given notice. And by April, I was in uh, Milwaukee. And I decided to do three months, as I was calling it, sabbatical, where I just traveled for a little while and I gave myself a little break. I just needed to sort of unravel. Um, I had, you know, a, a trip to Jamaica to see some friends of mine get married. I had a trip down to Austin to go to South by Southwest. I had with parents who live in Florida. And then I decided to go to Germany because I was like, I'd like to go to Germany and drink some wine. I went to Germany. And after all of those trips, I was like, I need to get a job. Well, not all of my money, but a good amount of it. Um, you think that you save enough and you never do. But yeah, so I decided to get a job. So I ended up coming back to Milwaukee and I got a job at a wine bar. And it was around that time that I was like, okay, I think I'm going to start thinking about this wine bar in a more serious way. And so I actually signed up for a, uh, what was it? I guess it was the a small business development uh, program through University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee. Um, they had a class on how to write a business plan because that was the thing that was really intimidating me. I was like, I don't know how to do that. I got what I needed to out of it. And I had a really good teacher who I think recognized that I was there to do the work. And he was giving me feedback on um, all the various parts of it I was writing. And I worked on that business plan for six months. And at the end of it, I had flight Cleveland. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my gosh, like I've sorted this whole thing out in my head. And it's like the best exercise. If anyone's starting, like looking to start a business, I highly recommend writing a business plan from a financial standpoint. And of course, like in business plans, like I was sort of like pulling numbers out of the sky a little bit for the, the, you know, financials. Cause I was like, you know, at the end of the day, it showed me like what I would need to break even and what I would need to make to be profitable. And so I was really proud of that. And I really loved it. Again, going back through another class, I loved that class. I loved going to it, loved everything I learned in it. And I spent so much time on that that business plan. It's sort of like when Flight and I sort of became one. I don't know how this even started, but I started shopping around to like, I think I sent it to like two people and all of a sudden... I should talk to this person. You should talk to this person. You should talk to this person. So I think I started doing that in December. By March, I was like talking with a neighborhood that I wanted to be in back in Cleveland, mind you. I, for some reason, like as I'm developing this whole thing from Milwaukee, I'm like, I'm going back to Cleveland. I'm doing this in Cleveland. And I think part of that was that I wanted to be, I wanted, I missed Cleveland. When I left, I kind of felt like I left home a little bit, which surprised me, but that's a whole nother topic. And then I also realized I knew Cleveland really, really well. What neighborhood might be a good fit for this concept? And I knew where there was an opening for what I wanted to do and where I could sort of fill a void, if you will. So yeah, I started flying back to Milwaukee and taking me 
And I believe it was by the end of March of 18, I had signed a lease at my current space. I had somehow miraculously talked a bank into giving me a, a, a loan. You know, my lease started in June. So I had all this time to like everything organized. And it just felt like the stars were aligning. The whole project really felt like that. You know, I had no idea what I was doing. Like literally no idea. You know, by December of 2018, you know, about two years into me working on this, we opened 10 days before Christmas. I don't recommend that. It was really crazy. And I don't think I like looked up or took a breath. Like it just was, it was crazy. Cleveland was so wonderful. Um, They received us so well. We were so busy. It was insane. And I had an amazing group of people who signed up. Now, I will also say that my current crew and all the crews in between have been amazing as well. But there's something about that OG that's just like really special. Because those were the days where I was working behind the bar every single day, every single night. I was there open to close. I was washing dishes, making cheese boards, cleaning bathrooms, doing whatever needed to be done. And it was really exciting. I mean, how did you decide on the name? Like, does it go back to the Bordeaux experience? It means like a couple of things, like flight uh, tasting of wine, but also flight travel, but like flight things come in, things leave. Like, is it kind of just all these different meanings kind of rolled into one and that's how you settled on the name? I remember very specifically being in Milwaukee, you know, working on this business plan, probably in my sweatpants on my sister's couch and having like a notebook, just like page after page full of name ideas. And like, some of them were so like out there and like had nothing to do with anything. And I remember sitting there, I just remember saying to myself, well, what if I just call it flight? And it just stuck. Like after that, I was like, that's it. That's the name. It's flight. And I started looking up flight and to see like who else had also had that idea. And there's a few of us out there. I think there's one in DC. I actually just met, um, I went to Oregon Pino camp last year um, in June. And I met my sister wine bar from Bend, Oregon. They're called Flights Wine Bar. So fun. Like she and I have stayed in contact and, you know, share information and, uh, it's cool. I just like that there's another one of us out there doing pretty similar things. But yeah, that's, you know, that's exactly it. I mean, literally it means flights because we serve our menus organized in flights, maybe a little bit more on the, the less literal side of things where we're talking about the idea of, of travel and adventure. And I use the word adventurous a lot here at flight because our wine list is, is not traditional. And it never has been. We've always sort of strayed from, you know, what's typical and tried to move off the beaten path and and show things that maybe you haven't had an opportunity to try before or haven't even heard of before. I mean, there's like, you know, some insane amount, like 10,000 different wine grapes out there. So there's a lot to choose from. But we're very used to in the American market seeing like the same top 20 or so. And there's just so much more out there. Um, so I've always been really committed to staying away from, you know, the things that you might find in a grocery store or in like a big box wine shop. And I've really tried to stay along the line of small producer. If we can find folks that are working as sustainably as they can, that's very interesting to me. And also I think very important, not just in the wine industry, but just agriculture in general, trying to maybe challenge folks in like a very gently soft way to get outside of their comfort zone. The flights, you know, were really designed for a few reasons. One, 
when I did my crazy girl market research and I stood outside of a coffee shop in Milwaukee and asked people the same five questions over and over again for several weeks, I found that only 17% of this like couple hundred people I talked to were comfortable ordering wine or going into a wine shop, which I just felt was like such a small number. 17% is like nothing. That really said to me and kind of drove a lot of my decisions. Like how do we make ourselves really approachable? And it's kind of like this whole feeling that you need to kind of create from top to bottom. And so the flight style of wine list is, is sort of where I began. And my idea behind that was that A, if we had a fun flight of wines, three, two ounce fours, and it's named something fun to say that's not a scary word that you can't pronounce. And there's maybe an anchor wine in there. So there's something that's recognizable. And then maybe there's two things that are not. Now you've got somebody ordering something that they can pronounce, maybe gave them a chuckle because we tend to lean towards names that are fun, maybe with some humor infused. Maybe that region or the theme of the wine was something that everybody would know that they were going to be interested in that. And maybe they drink all three wines and they find out that, yeah, they, the Sauvignon Blanc that they were familiar with, that was good. But I really, really like you know this Tanat. I didn't even know that I liked Tanat. Here I go. I've just figured out that there's a new grape in my wheelhouse and I'm going to be able to learn a little bit about it here at this bar. And then I'm going to be able to take that knowledge into the future, whether it's I want to shop or to not on a restaurant menu somewhere down the road, um, you feel empowered with that information. So when you're building the lights, you mentioned themes. How do you come up with the ideas? Is it just kind of like something that you encounter? Are you basing it off different regions in France? Or are you trying to include two whites and one red? Like what is your kind of the creative process to creating the set flights that you guys have? The answer is yes to all of your questions there. I guess I'll back up and just share a little side note story about all of this before I totally answer that question. But when I first started Flight, my very first employee was a gentleman named Matt Blank. And Matt is one of the best wine minds and palettes that I've ever met. And he was working at the time for Michael Simon's Mabel's. Um, and previous to that, he'd been at Lolita running their wine list and managing there for several years. And so again, it was kind of a coup that I was able to somehow steal him away from, from that, that restaurant group because they're like a big deal here in Cleveland. But I think he, you know, he and I hung out a couple of times and talked about the concept and talked about what I was trying to do. And I think he really got it. And I think he was really on board with, with what I was hoping to accomplish with flight. And he got hired to be our general manager slash wine director. And so he was our initial buyer, kind of just took the wine program and ran with it. And that's not to say that I was not involved, but you know, there's a lot going on when you're running a business. And so he really was handling, you know, the sussing through all of the different wine portfolios, the tastings, and kind of coming back to me where he then finalize things and, you know, come up with themes and come up with names and all of these things. So I was sort of a part of that process, but I was not driving it. Matt, unfortunately, passed away unexpectedly in December of uh, 2022, which was a huge blow for me personally, because uh, Matt became over the course of the four and a half years, I had the pleasure of working with him. He became one of my closest friends. Um, you know, we opened a bar together, a bar and wine shop together. Um, we 
went through a pandemic together where there was a time where he and I were the only people, like I only saw him. We were able to stay open the whole time. Um, we weren't serving, but we were able to be a wine shop. And so he and I worked the wine shop for however many months that took for us to be able to reopen. But there was a period of time where he was the only other human that I saw on the outside of, you know, the customers that would, you know, run in and out to buy wine. And so we became really, really good friends. That was a really tough time for me last year because it was one of those situations where he was here one day and he was gone the next and there was no time to prepare for that emotionally or logistically at work. So in the matter of a day, I became in, you know, in charge of our wine program, which, um, you know, almost a year later, I'm enjoying the experience of running the wine list and selecting our wine club choices and doing all the writing um, and spending time with all of our distributors and, and tasting all the wines. Um, I feel like in some ways I'm home, maybe in the role that I was supposed to be in. But conversely, I had my partner in crime, my sounding board. I was his sounding board. You know, I had this creative mind that I got to work with for four and a half years that isn't there. So I would say that, you know, to answer your question, I think initially he and I would throw ideas up against the wall and it's stuck. And now I feel like it's a little bit more strategic and it also can not. So just to give you an example, I just did a, a wine list change in September and I'm starting to work on a few new flights now. And I tasted a, a wine, Italian white, the varietals Verdicchio by a producer called La Staffa, and they're out of the Marque region. One of our distributor importers, um, who is a great guy, has a tiny little Italian book that's just awesome, full of gems. He brought this wine to me and I tasted it. And it was one of those moments where I was like, holy shit, that wine is just fucking killer. <laughs> like, it's awesome. And I'm like, what can I do with this? What can I do with this? And I was like, it starts with V. I'm going to do a flight called V for Vendetta. And it's just all wines that start with the letter V. So it's like, super loose, right? That's like not really a theme, but it is in the sense because we got to show Verdicchio, we've got to show Verdejo and Viognier, um, which are three grapes that I don't think get a ton of love in the white wine world, but they're three amazing grapes. And the ones that we chose, I think, kind of show what the their spiritual homeland, like their motherland <laughs> is sort of, you know, how it's supposed to show. You know, that's one way. Right now I'm working on a flight there's a band called Iron and Wine. So we're going to call the flight Iron and Wine. And the whole theme of the flight is minerality. And so we're, I'm seeking out wines that specifically either have like an iron sort of mineral. Like I want that like granite, iron, blood sort of mineral component. Um, so that's something that I'm tasting for right now. And then sometimes it's a bit more, I guess, esoteric in the sense that I have one flight right now that's called the Ancient Ones. And these are three grapes that are all ancient varietals. And I'm not talking like they first became known in like 18 something or other. I'm talking like 1100 or like, you know, further back even. Um, I want to know that this grape was written about by the ancient Romans. We have a lineup of a wine from Campania. The grape is called Cota de Volpe, an ancient white grape that has lineage, you know, that goes way back to the time of Christ, which is really kind of cool. Um, we have a, a Merwa uh, and Skin Contact Merwa from Lebanon, which again um, has lineage that goes way, way back. Um, and then we finished it off with a red wine, uh, Demora. Uh, so and this one is also from the Marque. 
which we talked about a little bit earlier. That to me was fun because it required a little bit more research um, on my part. And I needed to understand, like when I said ancient, like what do I mean by that? And how far back are we going? In the shop, you guys have, I think, 400 bottles, I think is kind of like the inventory list that you have. So all of which I think is available for sale, for purchase, retail purchase and everything, right? With that pretty sizable list, pretty sizable bottle list, how do you kind of now, since you're running it, as you mentioned, manage it? Like, what's your methodology? Because your big thing is staying within a, what I would call an affordable price point without sacrificing quality. Things are coming in, things are going out. Within the price point that you operate to is where a lot of wine is. But with that big net, that's also kind of a tripping point where you can run into things that are, well, it was really just like somebody else grew it. Then they did the crush facility and all that stuff. And you you get into like the barefoots and the whatnot. And some people like that and that's fine. But you can get into these obscure producers that maybe the quality is is lower. So how do you navigate being in that populist price point where that's where people, most people want to buy from too? but making sure that you have quality stuff in your list. I will say that we probably were not like at the top of our game, uh, December, January, February. It took me a minute to find my sea legs because, you know, when you're managing a list that has, you know, about 40 different wines on it that are themed into these little groupings, these flights, and then you're managing a shop that includes those same wines, but, and, and then some, you have to figure out how to pay attention to what, is coming in and coming out and what people are buying. And you have to pay attention to having a good variety of all the things that you need to represent various regions and countries. And then you have to pay attention to the details of who these producers are and how they're making their wines. And, you know, are these folks that, and I'm not saying that I have like a criteria, but like, I'm certainly less interested in things that are, you know, kind of the mass production. I kind of use the example a lot when we're talking to people here about sustainable wines, biodynamic wines, natural wine, all of that. I use the example of how we all shop food. We all would love to shop organic as much as we can, right? No offense, McDonald's, but the hamburger we're getting from McDonald's is different than the hamburger we're going to get from the locally owned small business that's doing you know, perhaps sourcing their meat from, you know, Ohio farmers and using produce from local farms and putting that all together the night of just for you, essentially, when you order it, there's a difference. We may not be able to open this bottle and have it sit on your counter for three, four days and for it to be perfect, but that wasn't the intention either. So you guys have a uh, preservation tap system, the Cuvinet in your wine bar there. You guys rotate, I think, the offerings like every quarter or something like that. What's the driver? What's the process for pulling something out of that and putting something in? Is it simply like we've run out of this or is it this isn't really moving or this is moving too well? Because that's its own challenge, right? Like people come in, they expect to see something there. Maybe there's something new. Did you take out their favorite thing? Why is my favorite thing not in here? Like, how do you kind of navigate using that system? I mean, the, the initial reason of buying the Cruvenet was that I love the idea of being able to pour this many things with, you know, little to no waste. And that has been 
huge because, you know, if I had all these open bottles, we'd probably be in trouble if we didn't have the system. So that's been really, really great. But in terms of, you know, the way that we organize our our changes, um, traditionally, uh, you know, up until really this year, um, we've just had set changes. So every quarter, we would change half the menu and they would sort of leapfrog over each other, if that makes sense. So that way, everything would be on the list. We also, you know, are kind of running into, and this is not necessarily new, but, you know, sometimes you put something on the list and you think that it's going to, you know, last and there's plenty of wine around. And then, you know, somebody from a different market buys up a bunch of pallets and all of a sudden that wine's no longer available. So there's something else in, or you can potentially just change the whole flight. So we've always been, you know, on a schedule though. It's been, you know, a quarterly change, changing, you know, about five to six flights at a time. And I've kept up with that since Matt passed. And it's not until basically right now where I've been like, I'm not going to do it this way. Cause you know, here I am thinking like, I have a December wine list change coming up. I'm like looking at that two, three week period around it. And I'm like, there's so much going on. Like I will like literally fall apart if I try and do this wine list change right now. So I've decided to do it in smaller bits. It's going to take us about two and a half months to change the whole list, but we're going to do them more progressively. So it's still the same process. It's just sort of drawn out a little bit. We are still on a schedule. So we are on the schedule of, you know, the fly flights that just went on in September. Um, they'll be there and I won't touch them until probably March. Um, and the ones that I'm uh, working on now are the ones that went on in June. And so we're starting to change those one by one. I have a feeling that as I continue to get more comfortable in this role, that I'll continue to make changes where maybe it isn't so much on a schedule and on a timeline. And maybe these flights are changing a little bit more spontaneously as I find things that I want to do. Um, but we always try and give a flight, regardless of its popularity, you know, several months on the list, just because sometimes it takes a minute for something to sort of take off and for it to be you know, noticed. Um, it's it's always easy for the flights that feature, you know, some of one of the major grapes, the classics, you know, Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay or Pinot Grigio or Cab or Pinot, you know, those flights always tend to do well um, just because of their anchor wines. But it's, you know, the wines that you know, maybe don't have that anchor wine and that are a little bit more off the beaten path, you know, sometimes it just takes people a little bit to to warm up to it. So, you know, we like to give everything its fair share. But I think also the fact that we are organized by wine flights and most people will come in here and start with a flight and then maybe, ch- you know, choose something in that flight that they want to do a glass of, or maybe they'll do one and done and just grab a bottle or, you know, whatever that might be. But you know, I think the flights help all of the wines get tasted pretty regularly, if that makes sense. Whether they get reordered, um, there's certainly wines that are like the runaway favorites and, you know, wines that are not striking fancy with the people right away. But, um, you know, we always try and hype up some of the things that aren't doing as well, um, especially if we know them to be like incredible wines. So it's, you know, sometimes it just requires a little help from our team to kind of get people excited about that kind of stuff. So with the wine club, flight club that you have, it seems like any wine shop pretty much has a wine club that you could join. But yours is a little different where you've structured in kind of these additional perks to someone's membership. It's not just 
$40 a month, you get two bottles, you know, or, or whatever. Like you've included some other things that you guys do, whether it's discount on your first flight or early access to any events that you have coming up. When building out the wine club aspect, did you look at other wine clubs and try and figure out like what is missing? How can I differentiate myself from those? Because it's becoming, I just feel like there's more and more wine clubs and it's getting harder and harder for people to choose what one or two or maybe three that you are a part of. Definitely. I mean, I think that for me, the first thing I paid attention to was price. I know that I would, you know, love to be in a wine club, but I don't always have the funds to support that habit. And so I really wanted there to be a level of offerings. So people could be in the wine club and they could be at a membership level that works with their budget and still participate and be part of the club. And then, you know, for those that maybe have a little bit extra room in their budget or entertain more or open more bottles, you know, they can, you know, go at a higher membership level and get more bottles and, you know, they too are being satisfied. So, you know, I think the, the, the various levels of membership and the various price points that they each represent, I think there's something for everybody. I don't know. I was thinking about this because a lot of wine clubs, you can be, you know, you can say my preference is reds, my preference is whites, you know, or you can say mixed. And I just thought to myself, like, oh my gosh, like that's going to be a lot to keep track of, you know, and to like figure out how to do all of these different things. And ultimately, I really wanted us to have the, I guess, the leeway to kind of pick and choose things that we thought were really cool. So we're dealer's choice. We give you the same thing. All the, all the members get the same wines. Um, the, there's a, a variety of different things that go into these, these packages. And, you know, we do everything from sparkling to white to rose and beyond. And so we're trying to maybe open people up to, you know, more things than, than, than just their preferences. And at the very end of it, you know, I mean, if you are just like, I do not drink white wine, then so be it. That's totally fine. Um, but now you have a bottle of white wine on hand for your white wine drinking friends that come over, or you have a gift to give somebody or whatever that might be. I think most folks like the variety. Um, and with that, you know, with the flight uh, releases, they get tasting notes and producer notes. And we do recipes now where we're actually including some things that we think would be fun for people to cook alongside these, these different wines and suggesting the pairings. And so, yeah, I think that I always continue. I literally was driving in here this morning because this is flight club week for October. So our release is happening right now. And I'm already thinking about January. I'm already like excited because that's our next release. And well, that's not true. Actually, our next release, we do an optional Thanksgiving one, which I am very excited about. Um, I can't tell you what's on the list because just in case one of them listened to it, I don't want to spoil the surprise. I feel like this lineup is like one of my favorites that we've done. So I'm very, very pumped about that. But I'm always thinking about the membership because the membership, our flight club members, they're the most engaged customers we have. They come to our events. They're part of the club. They come visit us in the, in the wine bar. They come shop with us. They're just so engaged and so supportive. So the more I can do to make their membership feel worthwhile and special, you know, I'll do it. I'm constantly thinking of things that we can do to sort of entertain and hopefully delight them. Uh, just because it's, 
it's kind of a special thing to be part of a wine club. And I, I think just getting a bag of wine is, is fine. But, you know, if you can do a little bit more and make it a true club, I think is, is kind of a little bit more fun. But I, I do love Flight Club. I love Flight Club releases. I love that we get to see everybody. Yeah, this is one of my favorite weeks of the year. It's a lot of fun. Is the next iteration potentially shipping an online store of some sort too as well? Is that something that you can see in your future, even though there's a lot of challenges with it, obviously? Right now, a lot of places, they do a wine club, but it's pretty much local pickup. And then they'll hold your stuff for a while. Like everybody's pretty flexible. And some will do like, yeah, we'll ship it to you, but you have to like specially, they don't advertise that they'll ship it, but like if you inquire, they will. So is that kind of the next thing for you? Like, can we move on to possibly shipping? So we have more people in the wine club, or maybe we have two different wine clubs. And then if we do that, do we open up some sort of online ordering process too as well? So we actually explored the online avenue uh, during the pandemic. And at the time, what scared me was that, you know, if somebody like our, our shop is small, we only have so much inventory on certain things, sometimes at my discretion and sometimes at the discretion of like, that's all that this they had of this wine. And I just bought it all. And like, what's here is here. And when it's gone, it's gone. About, you know, buying something online and us not getting it off the shelf fast enough. And then, you know, someone buys it in the shop and then it's gone. And now we've like messed up someone's order. So that's one of the reasons I didn't go um, online, you know, during the pandemic. And we kind of did it a little bit more old school um, with like call in orders or emailing in orders. And gosh, our customers are so trusting. They are, they'll send me a message and say, I need a mixed case of reds everything from light to full body. Um, this is my my budget and just put something together and they just let me put it together, which is like so cool. I love that. But then of course there's our people who are like, I need, you know, 12 of the same bottle. And like, that's something that we don't always have on hand. So I think that, you know, the online market is really interesting to me for sure. There's a lot of hurdles to get through, I think, especially here in Ohio. It's something that I would look towards um, perhaps in the future and kind of increase our retail footprint. Cause I, I definitely have people who are like, Oh, I would be in your wine club, but I don't live here. It's like, Oh, shoot, there's a customer that, you know, wants to participate with what we're doing, but can't. So yeah, there's, there's definitely, you know, thought as there was like two of me, maybe we could get more of them done. But yeah, it's a, that'd be a really cool one, I think, especially to expand Flight Club. How much is trust a factor in not just what you do, but also any other kind of independent wine shop? Like what I've noticed as they pop up uh, around, you know, any city, but even in Ohio, because we've had a few people on at different wine shops, but back in the day, it was people would go to their neighborhood butcher, right? And they, that's where they would shop or their neighborhood grocer and stuff like that. And that's starting to make a comeback, but that went away for a while. But if you look at the wine shop, like independent wine shop industry, that's almost like replacing it in the sense that people are now having their dedicated wine shop. Like that's where I go because I trust those people. So how much of a role does that play in the, that have you discovered within your customer interactions? Like this is kind of the only place that they go or one of the few places that they go because they trust your expertise. I mean, I think that is a huge part of like our just our ethos in general was that I wanted to have a you know small curated shop and wine bar list that our team could you know feasibly learn and you know get good at then share that information you know genuinely and articulately in a, in a way that will 
put people at ease. And I think one of the things I train when we hire new people is like, we just cannot wrong foot people. So if they say, you know, you want a full red and you give them a Pinot Noir, we haven't done our job now, you know? And so I would rather, if my team isn't sure how to answer the question, say like, you know, so-and-so has a better idea of what Spanish, you know, our Spanish collection or whatever it is, than to wrong foot someone in home with something that they did not ask for. I think vocabulary is like a really big thing for wine buying. It's it's a big thing in general, I think, for, you know, being able to articulate what you're looking for um, when it comes to food or or wine or cocktail or beer or clothing or whatever. I mean, you need to be able to describe what you're looking for. And wine vocabulary is like, it's all over the place, right? Like, I'm sure you've listened to, you know, wine folks talk and they're talking about like, you know, horse saddle and, you know. <laughs> All these crazy, we all say, but ultimately, like, what I want to know is, like, what do you want to have happen when you drink this? Like, do you want it to feel, like, light and zippy, or do you want it to be, like, grippy and full, and, like, do you want power? And, like, if we can kind of digest some of those terms and kind of whittle down to what you're asking for, I think we can get something really cool in your hand. Conversely, it's my job to make sure that the stuff I'm putting on the shelf is of good quality and that the team here knows what to expect and knows what we have here. So I certainly don't expect, you know, all my employees to know all 400 bottles in the shop. Um, You know, that would be insane. But I also do expect that like if someone needs something from the Veneto region, like we know generally, like we know where that is in the shop that we know, you know, which wines we have there and stylistically what they all represent. And our team does that really, really well. And I think that we have definitely built up a reputation as like the neighborhood wine shop. And we definitely have regulars who come in and who trust, you know, that we know the wines that we have here and we know their palate. One of my favorite things is when we do our staff tastings for new wines coming on the list that I love hearing the bartenders say like, oh, you know, who's really going to love this wine? And they start talking about our regulars. And I love that because they know exactly what they're going to introduce to these folks when they come in to give them a great wine experience. And so that to me is really exciting. And I think that because we're a small shop and a small bar and a small team, and we know our our customers really well, that we've been able to be really successful with that trust factor. Have we gotten it right every time? I'm going to say probably not, but like, I'm hoping that whatever we sent that person home with, that they still like enjoyed, it may not be the exact thing that they wanted, but you know, hopefully they still enjoyed it because it was a a good, well-made bottle of wine, but that what we're striving for every single day that we're open. Absolutely. Every single time. Is there a wine region or, or style that you're looking forward to either focusing on or incorporating into the wine list in the future that maybe you haven't or have dabbled with a little bit, but just haven't gotten to that point where it's really been something you guys have explored or or done a ton a lot with? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, Man, because we've been all over. I mean, some of, you know, we didn't talk about this in great depth, but some of our wine flights are, are regional. Like right now we have a flight on that's called Kono Sur, which is referring to the most southern tip of South America. Specifically, we've got a wine from uh, Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay on the list right now. And, you know, we've deep dived into each of those countries. Um, we've done, you know, kind of moved around France quite a bit, moved around Italy quite a bit. Sometimes with really, you know, general topics, like we've just had a, a, a flight called the Italian job, which was just a, a 
series of three Italian wines that we liked. And then we've gone in and, and gone a little deeper and done things that were like all from Piedmont or all from Tuscany. And, you know, we've done this before, but we've generally stayed in the white wine vicinity. But we've, I love the Loire Valley of France. I just love the wines from that region. I haven't met one yet that I don't like. And people ask me, what's your favorite? Or like, if you had to drink wines from one place for the rest of your life, what would it be? It's the Loire, like hands down. I've always done white wines from there, but I think maybe maybe we're due for a, a mixture and throwing in some reds because some of our flights are mixed up with you know both reds and whites. So maybe I would do that. I'll have to come back. I'll continue to think about that question because I feel like, like there's so many answers to that. I would love to actually deep dive a little bit further into New York to the Finger Lakes. I think that some of the wines coming out of the Finger Lakes are just so stunning. And we've featured things in a wine club and we've featured things um, like little one-offs in on the list, but we've never done like a whole flight dedicated to that. So that would definitely be something um, that I'm interested in. Because you guys have, I would say it's a eclectic list just because of, of what you guys are going for and it works. But are there any underrated or lesser known grape varietals, wine regions that you think deserve more attention than what you see out in the world, in the marketplace? Maybe you guys highlight those, but in general, like you mentioned earlier, a good chunk of America's wine buying is Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc. You can hit the top 10 pretty easily. But is there anything that you've encountered that you think, you know, people should drink more of or pay more attention to? So much. Uh, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is right now, for the first time ever, we do not have a Pinot Noir on our list, which felt like kind of scary. So we've rotated through not having a Chardonnay. We didn't have a Sauvignon Blanc. We didn't do a Cabernet. And I've sort of been tinkering with that just because I think we've now established ourselves as the place you don't come in and just start calling grapes, like give me your California Pinot or give me your, you know, Oregon Pinot. Like it's very rare that people come in here asking for things like that. They usually will wait and look at the menu and see what we have and ask questions. But we don't have a Pinot Noir currently, which was an interesting, I got a little nervous about it, truth be told, because going into the fall without a Pinot felt kind of crazy. But we have a Gamay from Oregon, which is really fun. So Gamay being the grape that's uh, most famous in Beaujolais. And then we have a, a Rouquet from Piedmont, which is sort of a slightly forgotten grape. Um, although there are some believers and some folks who are sort of trying to revive its popularity. Rouquet is sort of a softer, for lack of describing it um, in a good way, I would say it's kind of like a baby Nebbiolo in some ways, where it's a little... Um, doesn't have quite that grip and power, but it does have like some really soft, pretty fruit. Um, so it kind of plays really well to that, to that whole vibe, if you will. Um, we have a Rafosco right now on that's an Italian grape, but this is a Greek producer, um, which is, you know, kind of fun. And this is probably a step up in, in palate weight, but Rafosco is like such a fun little chameleon, cool climate grape. It's, it's really, most often seen in the northern part of Italy. And this particular producer brought it over, you know, from to back to Greece. Um, it's in the Peloponnese, but higher elevation. So cool climate, uh, red grape. So smooth and, and, you know, sort of brooding dark fruit, but real smooth and almost like a little light on a, on a finish. And so, yeah, I mean, those are just a couple of things that I think would be things I wish people would pay more attention to. But I think 
the grape that to me gets like the hardest wrap and that probably everyone should drink because it's just so amazing is Riesling. Love Riesling. It is like you can drink it every which way and they're all delicious. And it is probably one of the more, more like complex, nuanced grapes. There's just so much going on there and they can express in such different ways depending on where they're from. I, you know, that's, that's a grape where I would love to see that be one of the classics, if you will. I'm sure there's a big wine community that is like, oh yeah, like everybody drinks Riesling, but like, no, they don't. And um, I think people are scared of Riesling because they automatically think it's sweet, which isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes you need some sweet wine in your life. Um, I think, you know, it just depends on what you're doing. But yes, yeah, so, I mean, those are just a couple to note of things that I would love to, to see get a little bit more love. I'm sure there's more around. When you were going through your studying, W said, level three is where you got to. Was there a region for you that was just, you really had to pay extra attention to? Like everybody has that one region they love, they enjoy. I think for you, it's either Bordeaux or the Loire Valley, but everybody also has that one region where it's like, either you don't get it or it's the terminology or it's just not something you're really into and you have to like force yourself to to push through it. So did you have like that one section of studying where you're like, this is a slog, but like, I got to get through it kind of thing. There was things that felt more challenging for my brain to absorb than others. And not for any reason of my love of those wines. So like Burgundy is a very complex wine region to learn and to really understand. I feel like I'm still fighting the good fight, trying to really wrap my head around Burgundy. And I, I know a lot of my wine nerd friends um, are also doing that. But I think that's one of those one of those regions you could just spend so much time. I don't know. I mean, I, I know that there's people who are masters of various things. But to me, that was that's one region that wasn't a slog because I love the wines from of Burgundy. It definitely felt like a challenge. Like my brain just didn't want to compute for some reason. I don't know why. I would say that like parts of the new world also felt like that for me, um, specifically like New Zealand and Australia. Like I just wasn't computing or really being able to process like what those regions were about. And, and, you know, certain things were really easy to commit to memory and then, you know, be able to speak about with you know, confidence and, uh, you know, some real knowledge and then certain things, you know, were, are not. And so I feel like those two places, while I think I'm a little bit more confident in Burgundy than I am in Australia, I feel like, you know, there's, and there's probably a few more, but I think that those, those two places come to mind as to, of things that I just could not fully sink in. And maybe I just need to go there and that will take care of that. What's next for you guys? What's next for you professionally? I mean, you have some events on the calendar going through the wine club week and getting ready with the Thanksgiving one too, but what else do you have on the horizon? So many fun things. I mean, yes, we are a very event-driven company. We really enjoy hosting folks, whether it's, you know, a, an informal or, you know, a guided wine tasting um, or, you know, something a little bit different. Um, I have a couple meetings coming up here in the next few weeks um, about some new event pairing ideas. So it's really, you know, traditional to pair food and wine, but I'm actually going down a different road altogether and thinking about pairing wine and music. We're working on some music events that I think would be a really fun thing to do with, you know, friends or partner or whoever. Um, so working on that, um, 
there's always been this idea and this hope that we could travel as a wine shop and bar. So conversations are happening around how we could maybe take ourselves and our customers who are interested on a trip. So that's another sort of arm of what we want to do. Um, and then there's always just like, you know, innovation within the shop and and within the bar and, you know, how we can add new programming to continue to hopefully entertain and delight. We have some new things coming onto our menu over the next couple of weeks, including a few classic cocktails. Um, nothing crazy. We're not going to be a craft cocktail bar, but just adding on a few of the classics to help get us through this cold Cleveland winter. And, you know, just continuing to sort of innovate with some of our existing partners. Um, I did a really fun event last night. Uh, it was a wine and chocolate pairing for a, a, a client. And our chocolate partner is a, a group called Sweet Bean Candies here in Cleveland. And she's got a, a very similar story to mine. And we've been you know, collaborating for many years now and just had a really fun event last night. And, and the, uh, the idea of pairing chocolate and wine, um, you know, can be pretty traditional. But I think what we put on last night, and it was really great to watch people interact with those things that we created for them. Coast Grenache Rosé paired with a, a feta and pink peppercorn bonbon. I've never had cheese in a bonbon before, but I will tell you it was absolutely delicious. And with the wine, um, it does that thing that food and do together, which is they come and there's harmony uh, somewhere on your palate that's just really, really fun. And it was really great to kind of see people interact with that and to see people who probably were like a feta and a bamba and come up to us and say, that was my favorite pairing. Just those sorts of, you know, collaborations. So we got a handful of more questions for you, a couple uh, specific ones, and then we got 10 that we ask everybody at the end. So it's a compare and contrast across all the episodes for the listeners. This next question comes from the previous guest on the podcast, uh, Dean Forth, who is the beverage director at uh, Sushi Nakazawa in New York and DC and also LA, which are going to be opening soon. He left behind for you. If you had to drop it all, drop everything and start over right now, what would you do? I think if I had to drop it all and start anew, I think I would want to, I think I would want to have a store that allows me to cook. I think I would want to do, I have this idea in my head. It's like a silly little name, but you never know. You might see it. You might see it in the future. Maybe you'll have me back on with this concept, but I have a a noodle concept um, that I would love to do. And it's just noodles from all around the world, different recipes that I have played with throughout the course of my life and, you know, gotten them to the place where I think they're pretty fantastic. The concept is called nudes. And I would love to open my little noodle shop. And I think I would like to do that somewhere that's warmer, probably somewhere that's maybe a little bit more beachy. Um, I think, you know, I love the Midwest. I love being on the Great Lakes. I'll probably live around the Great Lakes for my whole life, I would imagine. I've always had idea of living in like a small, like coastal town. And that could still be like, maybe it's still like a lake town, but a small town with a cool little shop, maybe once a week of like a noodle pop-up day, you know, that kind of thing. So something I can walk away from perhaps like a little bit more easily so I I can go try and do all the things. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. If money was no object, you did not have to worry about that for the rest of your life. What would you do? You don't have a job. You don't have to like, you have no responsibilities. Like, what would you do? And I guess it's kind of similar to what was just asked of me. Perhaps some people have answered like with the money, like 
I would do this with that money. And some people have answered more like I just did with the question that was a little bit more direct. So the next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, what's one wine in your current inventory that you wish more people would either try, drink, buy, select? I would love people to come in and ask more about Cabernet Franc from the Loire Valley. And I just put a, a really nice Chinon um, by Bernard Baudry up on the shelf. And I really would love to see people come in and get excited about that. So this last set of questions, like I mentioned, we asked everybody who comes on the podcast. So nice compare and contrast across the episode. So who would you say is the biggest influence on your career looking back on it thus far? Probably my dad, entrepreneur his whole life for the most part, and has been a really, really great sounding board and support system for me as I, I guess, in some ways, try and follow in his footsteps, totally different industry. But I would say that he's definitely been someone that I've had in mind as I've gone through this whole process. And he's been there kind of every step of the way, offering support and advice when asked. So I really appreciate that. What is your desert island wine? Champagne. Restaurant you recommend that isn't your own. So not that you guys necessarily do food, you have small plates, but person gets stuck at the airport, flight canceled, uh, stuck overnight. They reach out to you. Hey, where should we go eat? You know, you guys are closed, but you kind of point them in this direction. I'm going to go with it pizza place here in Cleveland. It's right around the corner from my, their pizza is amazing. Hands down. Some of my favorite pizza in the city, but it's the energy of that place. Like you walk in there and you feel like you've just walked into a party and there's like pizza and there's wine and it's loud and it's like homey at the same time. And everyone who works there just has like the best energy. It's, it's definitely a a really fun place to go be a part of. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So place you have not traveled to yet, but you still want to get to. And then also a restaurant that you you know want to eat at, but you haven't eaten at. I would really like Bali. I know that's like not even a wine thing, but I would really like to go to Bali. And I would like to do like one of those cool like yoga retreats there and just like completely get wound down, if that makes sense. You know, as a business owner, you're just like up all the time and you're on and you're thinking and you're like creating and there's just always stuff happening. I would love to just check out on a beach somewhere pretty. I don't know, do yoga all day. That would be probably my my destination and my restaurant. That is like because I lived in Chicago for so long and I was also like really young and had no idea how cool that restaurant was then or the funds to eat at that restaurant by any means. So I I would like to see the show. You don't work in restaurants uh, anymore, but when you did, what was the craziest thing you saw happen while you were working? That one thing that like you still can't believe just happened, like it still comes to mind. I think it actually happened here. So this was like in our first year at some point, I was on the floor. I think I was washing dishes and one of the bartenders came around to me and she just kind of looked like a little, are you okay? Like what's going on? And she's like, I need you to go over to town. She's like, I need to warn you. She's like, are you, do you have a weak stomach? And I was like, oh God, what am I walking into? I was like, I don't know. We'll find out. So like I went over there. One of our customers had thrown up on the table and her friends were still sitting there with all of the stuff on the table. They had a bunch of cheese boards and dessert boards and stuff. And the food's all there covered in vomit. And they were like, do you think you could replace this? Like looking at me like I was going to give them new food because their friend threw up all of everything. Meanwhile, friend is like nowhere to be found. Like they're not concerned about her at all. 
And I had to literally convince them, like, you need to get up out of this table. Like, I need to clean this. Like, this is not okay. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, these people are so clueless. Like, what what in the world? Why would you? I would say that that was probably one of the crazier things that I've seen. Um, just because people, man, they do. I mean, there's a lot. But that one, I think, was the the one where I could not get over it. I thought it was so bizarre. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever, that, you know, is... Fairly unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself. Um, I have a secret love affair with the Olive Garden. It is one of my favorites. And I can go get down with salad and breadsticks, like no problem anytime. So I would say that is probably the guilty pleasure for food. And then for like candy or snacks, I just like, I love Cheetos. Like I love Cheetos so much, but I will not eat them at all. And I usually don't even let myself think about them, but I do love them very, very much. So this next one is wine recommendations. So we kind of broke this out into four different categories by price point. So zero to $20 a bottle, zero to 50, zero to a hundred, then over a hundred, no limit. And kind of focusing on what are things that you think people should be drinking, people that are somewhat interested in wine, you know, they don't have the entire scope of knowledge, but they enjoy wine, avid drinkers, like, what do you think they should be looking for, you know, when they're purchasing wine, you know, in those categories? So starting off with zero to 20, what do you think people should should be out there drinking? Gosh, zero to 20 is like, I actually am carrying a really fun bottle of uh, Sangiovese in the shop right now. It's on our 13 under 13 shelf by Poderi La Vigna. It's basically just really young, soon to be Brunello vines. And oh my gosh, this wine is, it's $10 a bottle. And it's one of the most stunning things I've drank recently. Like I can't stop thinking about that wine. Whenever I'm like feeling like I need a little, a good Sangiovese, like I keep coming back to it. So again, that's like, Part of the thing about having your local wine shop is like, you need to have someone who's like tasted a bunch of different things to be able to be like, these are the good ones. But yeah, I think that there's definitely a lot of good value um, in Italy for sure. And I I mean, I would say France and Spain as well, but I, I would say that Italy more often than not, I tend to find bottles in that price range that are like stars. Zero to 50. I feel at this point, you know, maybe we go like into Spain and I think maybe I, because I love Spanish wines and I'm thinking like some stuff from Ribera del Duero, you know, Tempranillo based stuff, some things from Rioja would be really nice. I mean, and like Gran Reserva Rioja, usually you can find, I mean, not all of it, but you know, some of it you can find, you know, under $50 and it's like stunning wine. It's and I, I think you like a bigger, fuller style of red. Um, so Vini Ardanza, I love, um, pretty much everything that they do um, out of Rioja. And they also have some uh, properties in Ribera del Duero as well. I also really, really love wines from Galicia, particularly if they're made by a gentleman named Raul Perez. I think that he is one of the more interesting winemakers to kind of keep an eye on in, in the current climate of this world. And he's based out of most of his wines come out of Bierzo and then also out of um, Rio Spicious. And so I feel like he does some really beautiful things with Mencia and with um, Albarino. Um, and I think that we're kind of in that range for him, that zero to 50, for sure. Zero to 100. Uh, this is where I would probably head back to Burgundy. 
you know, I've, I've had a couple of folks drink wines from Burgundy and come back and be like, I get the hype now. And there is something extremely special about the wines of that region. And I don't necessarily, we don't get like super pricey here with our Burgundy. Everything that we carry is usually under 50. But if you can get into some of these sort of smaller uh, plots of of vineyard and you can get um, to some of these producers that are doing, you know, either not necessarily single vineyard, but single plot or single, you know, property type um, bottlings. And you can find some things that maybe you've gotten a little bit of age on it. I feel like you're in for quite a treat. I would also think that um, mentions of Northern Rhone as well. I think that you're you're kind of in that that you know ballpark when you're going on pretty much everything by JL Shav. Uh, so I feel like if you could find pretty much anything that they make and they have a range, um, I feel like you'd be in in good company with that bottle. And then over a hundred, kind of no real limit. I mean, I feel like at that point, like I would want to be drinking probably like Merceau or Conjuru would be really great. I love wines from Conjuru. I'd probably go back to the Northern Rhone again um, and drink some beautiful Syrah. Yeah, I think those, those are the wines where I would start getting excited to buy some of those, those wines from those regions. What is one book focused on beverage that you think everyone should read? I think the book is called American Terroir. It basically talks about like terroir and agriculture in the United States. And I just thought the whole thing was really fascinating and sort of thinking about sometimes things outside of the wine world and why things are planted in certain places and why they do well. Um, I think it's a lesson in just agriculture in general. Um, so I think that would be something I would recommend if people are trying to understand why things do well in certain places. I think this is a, a good book on it, kind of breaking that down. And finally, I'm a Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. If you were, uh, was there a moment episode scene that still stands out to you about him? If you weren't, was there anybody else who was on TV, you know, whether it was a cooking show, uh, an Emerald, Julia Child, a Martha Stewart, or anybody who was on TV in kind of the cooking or, or travel space that you kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up through your career? Yeah, I mean, I definitely was a fan of Anthony Bourdain as well. You know, obviously, I read the book, I watched the shows. I don't know if there was like one particular episode that stood out for me. But, you know, I also have like a terrible memory for television. So that's asking me a question I probably just can't answer. Um, But I do just remember, you know, being, you know, early on in my career and thinking to myself, like, how wonderful is that? This guy has worked his way up to the point where a TV station wants to follow him around and watch him eat, you know, things that are completely local and indigenous to these various areas of the world. And he's just being adventurous and trying everything and really sort of diving headfirst into, you know, every culture that he got to explore. And I just thought that that was one of the coolest things. I do love like the travel shows and I love, especially when they're talking about food. Um, So yeah, I think that he kind of hit the nail on the head for me with that. And then just sort of like, I don't know why I like her, but I really like (laughs) Ina Garten. (laughs) I don't know why. I just, her recipes, they make sense. Very easy to execute. You know, I know she's, people probably like love and hate her. 
But I think like, I don't know if she was an influence for me, but she definitely is like someone that I sort of enjoyed following what she was cooking. I tend to follow, you know, I guess a lot. I've been cooking a lot more Asian food lately. I feel like, you know, more recently I've been interested in like Szechuan and Vietnamese food. And so I've been buying a lot more cookbooks that are more specific to those cuisines. So I think that's been sort of my new my new thing um, and kind of learning how to to cook um, outside of what my my norm is. It's been fun. I like it. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. All of it. Uh, flightcleveland.com, on Instagram at Flight Cleveland, on Facebook, Flight Cleveland, our email, wine at flightcleveland.com. Um, we're located just outside of downtown Cleveland in the Gordon Square neighborhood. We'd love to hear from you. Come see us. You guys are open Tuesday through Sunday, mix of three to 10, and then the weekend's kind of two to 11, two to eight. If you want to do an event with you guys, reach out to the email, check out the website. You can join the wine club there too. And then also you guys got a running list of upcoming events uh, on the website too as well. So, but this was awesome. Uh, Thank you again for coming on. You know, there's not, I think a whole lot of wine shops that are in Cleveland, but even less so uh, doing what you're doing, the nuanced theme that you have and kind of approaching it a different way, but still giving people who are interested a different approach to it, kind of breaking down the barrier of, I think a lot of people aim to break down that kind of stuffiness of wine and, and how it kind of gets sometimes to this level that like people just don't feel comfortable, like you mentioned, or approachable. And it's very easy. When we were in New York, we went into a wine shop. I forget the name of it, but it was somewhere in the West Village. And it was like two floors. And like, I know stuff. And I was walking through there and I'm like, this is a lot. <laughs> like, this is, a, I was like, I'm looking for like two specific things. I can't find the section. I don't really want to talk to anybody right now either. Like, I'm just going to, I know where I could probably find this somewhere else in the city. So like, I'll just go there. But yeah, you, you run into that and kind of what you, the format that you guys have is, is really awesome. So looking forward to stopping in and, and checking you guys out next time we're back up in Cleveland. So we've got some family in the area and everything. That would be great. Thank you so much for reaching out. I honestly have like never had a year quite like this, but it was really nice to come on and chat with you about flight. And so thank you for that. Big thanks again to Lindsay for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of her morning to come on before kind of the shop opens and everything. And they start doing events and having people come in for food and drinks and everything. So again, you can follow her on Instagram at flight Cleveland, check out their website. They have events coming events and everything uh they kind of have a wine list up there too as well flight lists uh all that stuff you can find there you can join the wine club too as well if you're in kind of the cleveland area or make it to cleveland once every couple months or you can participate in the wine club since they are pretty much a local wine club right now only if you're in the cleveland area and you get a chance to stop in they're off detroit road they'll just look them up um in their hours and everything stop in have a glass of wine or two grab a bottle or two and uh, enjoy kind of what they're doing. So we're excited to be able to make it up there soon in the next month or two up to Cleveland area and stop in and see some of the people that we've had on the podcast, um, whether it's Lindsay at Flight or Vinny at Cordelia. So super excited to see all those folks here in a little bit, but make sure to follow her on Instagram, follow us on Instagram too as well. We're at SpoonMob. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com. Follow, subscribe to the podcast wherever platform that you use to consume podcasts, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, whatever. You can find us on 
everything and anything. Make sure to write in questions, comments, feedback. We'll incorporate those into an upcoming episode. Uh, we also have a mailbag that I'm working on that we're going to drop that episode to as well. A bunch of kind of questions we haven't been able to integrate into an upcoming episode with a guest. And also some questions that were directed at us too as well. So we're going to answer all those for everybody. Don't think I'm going to read who the question is from for each one. Some of it's Instagram handles and then some of it's like email addresses, but it's like user X791. It just doesn't make any sense. So we'll reply to those people individually that we answer their question in the mailbag episode so they can find it. You can still write in and everything. So um, if you write in anything now, off chance that it'd be included in the mailbag episode, most likely we try to incorporate it in an upcoming episode. But keep that stuff coming. It's cool to see the engagement, cool to see comments and messages from people who listen to episodes um, that are super excited to see the guests featured. And we've had a lot of like first time podcast guests recently. As soon as it kind of like the episode starts, they're like, yeah, this is like the first podcast. Like I've never been asked to do one or done one before. So Hopefully it becomes kind of the gold standard for those people and they, any future podcasts that they do, they kind of always compare it to their experience on Spoon Mob. But you get a chance to stop in any of the establishments that we've featured over the course of the last three years. Make sure to let them know that you heard their episode of the Spoon Mob podcast when they were a guest. Uh, help support them as much as you can. We try and support everybody as much as we can too as well, anyone who comes on the podcast. So Always an open invitation for those folks and everything. We try and feature them on our Instagram stories, reshare, you know, any upcoming events, new dishes, all that kind of stuff too. So you can keep an eye out on our Instagram stories. And if you're not following them or stuff gets lost in the shuffle, they keep changing the algorithm for Instagram. So it gets kind of weird with trying to find stuff. I know I miss stuff too as well. I have people send me stuff and I'm like, I follow that account. And I didn't know that was going on. So, but that is it for this week. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support. If you're new, welcome. Hope you've been enjoying the last few episodes wherever you kind of jumped in. Make sure to check out the back catalog when you get a chance to as well. A bunch of people on from different parts of the country, not just the Ohio and Cincinnati and Columbus and Cleveland, but had people on from across kind of the nation, a couple of international folks too as well. That is it for this week. New episode back on Thursdays next week. Wrapping up kind of the year as we get into the home stretch, get closer and closer to 150. Working on the mailbag episode for you guys too. So we'll drop that. I have no idea how long that's going to be. That could be an hour. It could be three hours. I don't know. I'm just going to set it to record and just blow through kind of the questions and stuff. Um, so excited to kind of get that knocked out here for you guys too as well. And we'll just kind of drop it randomly. But yeah, new episode next week on Thursday. So we'll talk to you guys then.